Join us for part two of our discussion with Jonathan Rowson, in which he explores metamodernity, the emerging cultural expression, which is a response to the great challenges of our time. He explores education and the question of whether we can grow ourselves out of our challenges. And he looks at whether the ecological crisis may be an educational crisis. And finally, he explores what chess has taught him about life and what we can learn from it too. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists, with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. You know, you are a thought leader in the field of metamodernity. Maybe our listeners haven't heard of that yet. We both read uh, Hansi Freinacht, and uh, I'm working on the second book, uh, Nordic Ideology, but I was really impressed by the first. But what is it maybe differentiated from postmodernity, and maybe share what you think it has to offer as we look at and approach these meta crises? Okay, thank you. So the long form answer to this is actually available online, an, an essay called Metamodernism and the Perception of Context. And the subtitle there is revealing. I think it's the cultural between the political after and the mystic beyond. And that can help me structure the answer now, because first of all, there's the ITYs and the ISMs, right? So there's modernity, postmodernity, metamodernity, and there's also modernism, postmodernism, uh, metamodernism. Now, you can move between them to some extent, as always with these discussions, you have your lumpers and your splitters. You have people who say they're more or less the same thing and others who say no, they're totally different things. So let me just back up slightly to say this. It would be a mistake to think of metamodernism as a thing that comes after postmodernism, as if it was some simple linear sequence. It would also be a mistake to think metamodernity comes after postmodernity as some simple linear sequence. It's more like this. No one really doubts that there was a valid historical or historiographical term called modernity and it refers to a long period of time leading up to roughly about 20, 30 years before the turn of the century, when signs of postmodernism started to arrive in architecture and art and culture. And then the term metamodernity is often used to refer to the internet era, when the world radically shifted with a new structure of information. And that's where the patterns of critique and perspective that were brought into bear in postmodernity were sort of eclipsed by a different way of different orientation. Now, that's a simple map to get people to orient chronologically, but it's just the beginning because the deeper way to understand it is that the meta in metamodernity, so that there's no question that something comes after modernity, right? And some call it post. And for that, they, they mean all sorts of cultural changes that applied up to and including the 1990s. Those are modernity turned in on itself in a certain sense, using the tools of logic and reason to question the validity of logic and reason. A lot of postmodernity is a kind of critiquing of the modernist impulse, right? That much is kind of fairly well established. But after modernity can mean many things. So it can mean eco-modernity, it can mean hyper-modernity, it can mean alt-modernity. We can get lost there, right? To keep it real, the meta term is very useful because what it really means to invoke metamodernity is to say that what matters in this historical moment is in some sense 
a relationship to modernity, a subjective and intersubjective relationship to it that is characterized by a recognition that our interiority is a critical feature of cultural renewal. That's detailed in more depth and care in the essay, but the term refers on the one hand sort of chronologically to the world after the internet, including the world after 9-11 as well, a kind of different state of historical time that's sometimes called metamodernity, but it also has this more injunctive chirological quality of this being the time, the time to relate more deeply and fully to the process of modernity that has shaped us thus far. That's all sort of temporal stuff, right? But it's not really the juice. The juice is something else. The reason metamodernism is useful is, there's several different reasons for that. The cultural between that I refer to in the subtitle is referring mostly to work done by a range of literary and artistic scholars about noticing cultural artifacts in the world, in films, in art projects, in books. So David Foster Wallace is sometimes called a metamodernist writer. And what they tend to be referring to, and, and other examples would be arguably things like recent Netflix series like Cobra Kai or Stranger Things that apparently are retro and apparently are ironic and therefore look postmodern actually have a deep interiority to them. They actually still have meaning, purpose, and value. They're not just a kind of ironic, wry, aren't we clever, or look at the self-reference. They're actually, here's the self-reference, but it's also the meaning of life. And it's sort of, it's coming back to the value commitments that matter. So the first aspect of metamodernism is something about cultural forms that are serious about meaning of life again, that are serious about questions of, meaning, value, and purpose in human existence that are not just self-referential and clever like the way maybe Seinfeld was. You know, Seinfeld was very, very clever and very postmodern in its own way. Lots of in-jokes, lots of cultural references, but it didn't really have a heart. You know, it didn't really have a kind of, and therefore this is what it is to be more fully human. It wasn't aspirational in that way. So that's the first part. The second part is what's sometimes called the political after. Now that's where Hansi's work is somewhat relevant because Hansi's trying to build a political program based on human development that he sees as a way out of kind of the exhaustion of modernity and the stasis and sort of hypercriticality of postmodernism. And it's a sort of a political program beyond that. But I would add to that something quite important. And I realize this is a long and somewhat convoluted. It has to be because it's a rich and dense and multifaceted concept. But the other feature of metamodernism that's really important in the context of the political after too, is it's actually a, an antidote to hypermodernity and hypermodernism, to, to bring that into the picture. So when you think of the metaverse and Facebook and Elon Musk and world of virtual reality and the world of surveillance capitalism, these are the problems of hypermodernity where humans are alienated from their surroundings and somehow we're dehumanized surrounded by things we don't understand and often our attention is exploited for profit these features of hypermodernity are what metamodernism is arguably designed as an antidote towards because it's a return to the human a return to the subjective experience a turn to the interiority and also a turn to the betweenness so the work of people like john verveke and several others about rekindling dialogue as a sort of necessary practice for this time that we're in is also a critical feature of the political after. In other words, it's a project based on 
returning to basic human sensibilities. Sometimes that manifests also in things like what they call cosmolocalism or bioregionalism. There's a return to the land, a return to the hands, a return to the soil. These are all somewhat metamodern in the sense that they're no longer pre-modern. They're not kind of like going back to forgetting all the progress we've made, but they are about realizing we have to reconnect with the land in spite of the fact that there is a big city 20 minutes away or whatever. Finally, forgive me for the long answer, there's the mystic beyond, what I call the mystic beyond. Quite a big part of metamodern thinking for some is a return to metaphysics. And the reason for that is that the modernist project, arguably one of the things it did was it broke down the value spheres. This is an insight of Habermas. The relationship between the true, the good and the beautiful was somehow severed such that science would stand on its own, but wouldn't interact adequately with art or morals. And some of what metamodernism is doing is trying to reunite those fundamental value spheres of the world. And one of the ways it tries to do that is getting beyond the postmodern flatness of the world that says everything is just self-reference, to get to an actual creative impulse to imagine a view of reality in which our interiority and our individuality and our own sense of meaning and purpose has its own ontological validity, right? That's part of the metamodern project. It's a kind of creating a metaphysics that's worthy of us in this time. And the last thing to say, if you don't mind, because it's critical that the whole point of metamodernism is it's a philosophy for a time between worlds, where one world appears to be dying and another has not yet been born. Now, this idea of a time between worlds sounds kind of poetic, but it's also quite deeply empirical. There is a whole sphere of sort of data-driven history where you see phases of history where there's a confluence of major technological and economic developments giving rise to shifts in culture. And this is happening now, and you can sort of measure it and show it. The shift of informational technologies, patterns of finance, movements of population gives rise to some seismic shift in our sense of who we are as human beings. Now, that's the kind of backdrop against which metamodernism comes in and says, in the context of that scale, in this world of hyper-objects and planetization, where we're all a little bit lost and struggle to make sense of what's happening at scale, metamodernism is reconnecting with our intimacy, with our interiority, with our sense of local ecology. And to some extent, it's re-engaging with history as something that we're not just helpless subjects of, but also the creators of. And therefore, that's why it has this sort of cultural, political, and mystical element, because it's trying to get to the beyond. It's trying to get to the next form of life that is worthy of the best of human beings. Wow. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan. That's a beautiful summary. Like John, I've read Hansi Freinacht's two books and really been very struck by them. I've enjoyed your, well, <laughs> I've been wonderfully challenged by your Metamodernity book. And I somehow there's something about the, the concept of metamodernity, which I find, even though I've engaged with it several times and in a number of formats, somehow always feels a little elusive for me. So I'm very grateful that you downloaded all that and pointed to those many themes. And it feels like you encapsulated an awful lot there. How does that inform that perspective, that worldview of metamodernity inform what you're doing and prioritize what you want to do. So this is where we come back to confusion, right? Because, you know, while I've written that essay, I did take a lot of time to try and make sense of it because it was quite quickly clear to me that Hansi was not 
the beginning or end of the metamodern story. It's just one of the more popular and accessible ones. And then I got into looking at the history of the term and, and some of the major fields of inquiry in it. And as, as a result, I wrote this piece and we also have a book with metamodernity in the title. But honestly, like, I'm not a card-carrying metamodernist. It's not as though I want to convert people or persuade people of this. I find the term quite clunky too. I mean, meta has its own limitations as a term, it can be overused. And aren't we trying to get beyond modernism and modernity? Like, there's a part of me that feels a, bit, a little bit uneasy or at least ambivalent about this term. And yet what I find challenging is that whether you're speaking about development or the metacrisis or metamodernism, I quite like trying to make sense of these terms because I see it's really important to actually rectify the words as Confucius put it. On the other hand, it's not really where my hope lies. You know, they're still just tools. They're still just ways of crafting conversations and creating a sense of context. The, the term perception of context is very important because I think that is a critical active ingredient in how the world comes to its senses. We've got to perceive the context clearly that includes our own interior context and our own capacity for growth and our own emotional needs and everything else. But it's also the context writ large in 2021 with bio precarity and ecological collapse and governance failure. And, and yet technological innovation, kindness, local initiatives, political innovation, it's all happening at once. And it's thoroughly confusing, right? And in that context, I don't come along and say, here's the answer, guys, metamodernism. But what I do say is if you want to understand what's going on, if you want a kind of set of ideas and sensibilities, and it is really ultimately a sensibility, it has an aesthetic quality too, then you could do worse. You could do a lot worse. This is one of the better, more full, more all-encompassing conceptual canopies to hide yourself under, to feel a little less lost. And, and that's kind of how I use it. I find it very useful as a way of orienting myself but not to get lost there. It's not the moon. It's still a finger pointing at it. Well, and I love the way you are able to move and do keep moving between a real immersion in a, in a concept or in this, in the case of metamodernism, a complex of ideas and values and, and priorities, and then step back and look at it. So again, it's not something you're looking, you're just looking through or from it's also something you're stepping back and making an object and looking at. And, and I want to go back and just acknowledge the beauty of what you said about confusion. I was extolling, <laughs> now I think rather simplistically, extolling uh, confusion as a virtue. And you, you nuanced that and said, well, you know, we need to look closely at confusion. What kind of confusion and <laughs> in what ways is it helpful and what ways it's a hindrance. And I think that's that's the beauty of this kind of dialogue, you know, and there have been many occasions in this conversation, but you took a something that I was accepting rather uncritically, I realize now, and nuanced it and looked at the particularities. And so I find this your dance <laughs> with different ideas, both the immersion and then the stepping back and then how to use this skillfully as a tool for the welfare of all is just a beautiful process. I'm grateful, Roger. I should also add, though, it's interesting to hear you say that now because you know, that is kind of how I am how I am at the moment. On the other hand, it can be quite tricky to run an organization from that perspective, right? Yes. People are often seeking clarity of roles and clear decisions and coherent strategy. And, you know, I'm wrestling with that because I would like sometimes to be more resolute, sometimes to know with more clarity what is important and what isn't and what is signal and what is noise. I'm hopefully growing into that, but it has been quite a steep learning curve. 
And it feels like there's, again, there's a dialectic or a process between acknowledging confusion or even perhaps deeper fundamental mystery as our ground, as the existentialists would say that we live in groundlessness or even deeper, the Buddhists would say shunyat, all is ineffable, nothing can be adequately grasped. And yet we are called to action. We cannot escape that. That's uh, the one thing the existentialists can tell us, we cannot escape our responsibility for our lives and and action. So how do we hold both together? It feels like the challenge, acknowledging the mystery and saying, here's my best guess. And I'm willing to act on that and take responsibility for it. I could be wrong, but here's my best guess. Yeah. And there seems to be a commitment in your writings and Hansi and anyway, my part of the elephant that I'm seeing anyway, to working on yourself, working on oneself, that we are as individuals aren't complete, but we are unfolding. And if we are going to become the kind of people we need to be to do the things that we need to do, it takes a lot of work. And the buildings idea that we took away from, I, I found that really powerful and evoking and inspiring. Well, you remind me there, John, of a quotation you may have come across in my writings. I've used it more than once, but it's from the German philosopher Thomas Metzinger. And he's describing his impression. And again, initially, it sounds like sort of pessimistic, negative thing to say, but it has a deeper hope inside it. He's describing human beings becoming aware of their own inability at scale to solve the first major planetary crisis, namely climate collapse, and failing to deal with it over many decades, despite the knowledge. So the gap between the physics and the politics being unbridgeable, the gap between knowledge and action being enduring. And he says that he predicts that over the next few years, as we observe anthropogenic climate collapse unfolding and prove to be unable to stop ourselves at scale, that we will begin to think of ourselves as failing beings, right? But before he says that, he says, the reason we'll do that is because we'll think that the climate collapse is beyond our current cognitive and affective abilities. Cognitive and, I think he says affective, yeah, rather than emotional. But let's just for now say cognitive and emotional abilities. Now, what got me thinking there as someone informed developmentally as well, you know, what are cognitive and emotional abilities at scale and what would it take to have the requisite amount to actually deal with this problem? And that's quite a simplistic, there's the problem, here's the solution orientation to it. But it did get me thinking in terms of building and education, because ultimately, if we're not up to it, if it is the case that this collective action problem is beyond our current cognitive and emotional abilities, it does seem to beg the question of, well, let's sort that out, right? And that's an educational imperative. Yeah. You've used the term Bildung a couple of times, and it's a very important educational concept, but may not be a familiar one for our audience. Could you uh, say something about that? Sure. So it has a rich history. It's a sort of Germanic term, but often used in Nordic countries as well. And the simplest translation is just education. That's the brute translation, if you like. But a more sophisticated translation would be something like transformative civic and aesthetic education. And I use those terms quite carefully. So transformative in the sense that it gets to the underlying form of the culture and form of the individual and tries to work on how people know and how they are, not merely just filling their minds with content. Civic, because it's about place-based and sometimes nation-building qualities of like coming together to grow in a way that allows us to meet the challenges of our time. So it's both working on the individual, but in a collective shared societal context. And aesthetic, because 
it has this kind of orientation towards, in some of the writings, it has some romanticism attached to it. So it's oriented towards a sort of aesthetic appreciation for the world and forms of intrinsic value, growing and learning to make meaning, not merely to be a more effective business manager or whatever. So I would say it's transformative civic and aesthetic education. And the reason I mention it in this context, and I've written a piece that you may have show notes about the relationship between building and the ecological crisis, is that in effect, there are tacit learning needs baked into the Global Collective Action Challenge. Things like the capacity to think systemically, things like the capacity to close value and action gaps, things like turning an idea into reality. These are all kind of educational challenges. It, when we think of climate change, we think of energy and land and politics. But underlying it all, there's this democratic, I use that term with some doubt, but what I mean is that mobilizing the people is not just mobilizing as they are, but mobilizing them in the collective effort to grow into this problem in such a way that they're worthy of it and can begin to contend with it. And the clock is ticking, as I've said, but I do believe that if you take that quotation about becoming failing beings, because we come to think that this problem is beyond our current cognitive and emotional capacities, I say no. Like I say, part of me is like, yes, I hear you. You know, I don't wish it away. There, there are moments where we think, are we really so wayward and frankly useless as a species that we would destroy our only home? Can that really be it? Are we so disconnected from power and unable to shift patterns of power that we can't even protect our own planet? Are we really going to keep cutting down trees and burning fossil fuels? Do we really care about these consumer durables that drive the whole planet's economy? We can't be that foolish, surely. And yet here we are with our little atomistic, individualistic lives, looking after our families, trying to keep our jobs. And on it goes and on it goes until the planet gets hotter and hotter and the wildfires start and the floods start. And so it goes. And that's what he's getting at, that we might be stuck to such an extent that we can't unstick ourselves. And that's where Bildung comes in. It's another concept that, since we'll throw another one into the fire, but Bildung would be often a sort of fairly folkish notion at quite localized scale of a community learning what the community needs and meeting the skills of the community and finding the meaning of the area to do the work that's required to, for example, revitalize a town or whatever. But there's also this other notion of padia, which is used in educational philosophy too, which is something more like the polis. There we've got a kind of global polis now with the climate challenge. And we need a global padia. We need a kind of way of what are we going to learn at scale and that might sound ridiculously ambitious, but if you think about it, the internet's already doing that to some extent. You know, many of these widely viewed philosophy programs and major intellectuals that are getting hundreds of thousands, if not millions of views, is to some extent the planetary immune response, teaching us what we need to know to adapt to the challenges of our time. So yeah, that's John, the long answer of why I think Bildung is relevant, why I think the ecological crisis is fundamentally an educational crisis. And my thinking on this, by the way, is quite deeply informed by Zachary Stein, who's written a marvelous book called Education in a Time Between Worlds, which is recommended. Yeah. And this again relates to the previous discussion about development, because it seems that one of the core features of Bildung is that it emphasizes the possibility of development and not just information, but transformation, as you said, and transformation in the service of civic virtues. The responsibility of development, too. 
taking that on is what must be done. We've covered an enormous range of big picture questions here, Jonathan. Obviously, we could go in any number of directions with them, but I'd also like to turn back a little more personally to your life and reflections as a chess master, because you not only rose to the pinnacle of that game, but you also treated it as a metaphor. You approached it very reflectively, and in your book, The Moves That Matter, you really drew on the game to distill lessons for life. And I'd love to have you reflect on those. For example, I think the first of them was concentration is freedom. There's a lot in that, just those three words. I, I sometimes wish that had been the title of the book. I think it would might have carried further, but thank you. Well, the book arose because people kept asking me, what has chess taught you about life? I thought I'd take it seriously. It has taught me something, but what? And it took a lot of examination and soul searching to figure it out. Back in the day, I used to write a newspaper column every week about chess, but for a general audience. And so there was very little chess content in it. Most of it was a kind of reflection on something would happen at a tournament or something would happen in the middle of a game. And I would spin that out into sort of world-relating, personal, self-help-ish, but not in any trivial sense, material. And then I had a huge volume of that, but it wasn't structured in any way. So a combination of serious philosophical inquiry into what chess has taught me and a desire to structure the content of all of these anecdotes and stories from the chess world gave rise to a book with 64 sort of short stories of sorts with some sort of major theme. And it's also structured according to the eight by eight structure of a game. So there are eight chapters with eight illustrations of that point in each chapter. So the first is concentration is freedom. And the, I give a few others just to give a flavor of it. One is escapism is a trap. Happiness is not the most important thing. Your autopilot needs your tender, loving care. These are all things that I've learned from chess and more. Concentration is freedom is perhaps one of the more important ones. A few years after playing chess very regularly, you know, I look in on tournaments and I said, what's going on in there? Like I was one of those people once, hunched over the board, very, very sort of determined, really believing that what I was caught up in mattered deeply. But now looking at it from afar going, hmm, I wonder why people are doing that, and so many of them. And one of the conclusions I came to is that, you know, it's not just that you play chess to get a better result or to find better moves. You know, you don't just, concentration is not just that. People are actually playing chess to get the experience of concentration. You know, it's that it's in some ways the reverse. It's not so much that you concentrate to play better chess, but you play chess to concentrate better because the experience of concentration is deeply intrinsically rewarding. And the idea of the chapter, it goes a bit deeper than that. It goes into positive and negative theories of freedom, in which broadly speaking, what sometimes called positive liberty is, it's the freedom from constraints, right? but it doesn't have any real substantive content. You're not free to do anything in particular. But positive freedom is, has a richer conception of the good life, of what a fully flourishing human life is. And I'm arguing that in that sense, concentration is freedom, and that if you can't learn to concentrate, if you don't know the rewards of concentration, many of the better patterns of life, many of the experiences of virtue, the experiences of growth towards fuller forms of existence will not be available to you because they depend on concentration. That's roughly what that chapter is about. Yeah, and it seems particularly important in our times because stepping back, the contemplative traditions have always recognized that the capacity for holding attention, for concentrating on a particular object of, of choice, rather than being a victim of one's own attentional incapacities is absolutely crucial because the mind takes on the qualities of whatever we attend to. And by 
skillfully attending to certain things, we can cultivate particular qualities. But it seems that's a perennial or timelessly important aspect of concentration. But there's also a novel perspective in our time where we have the so-called attention economy, where so much of the media is vying for what is a limited capacity. And vying for it for not particularly helpful reasons. So it seems like we need the capacity for concentration more now than ever before. Yeah, I I think that's right. And I think it's a highly non-trivial problem. In fact, when you think of major challenges of our time at a civilizational scale, one of the biggest constraints is human capacity to concentrate. Because you need that to, first of all, perceive the context. But you also need it for the tenacity to stay with things that are complex. You need it for building up understanding. And you often need it to listen deeply to others and to actually cooperate and, and so forth as well. So the capacity to concentrate and, to, and, and the ability to train yourself in, in concentration feels to me like an imperative, a cultural imperative. And chess is one way of doing that. And it's quite a good way. The skeptic, of course, would ask, does it transfer beyond the domain? You know, does concentration in chess lead you to concentrate elsewhere? It's a good open question. My sense is that your physiology comes to enjoy the taste such that you miss it when you don't have it. And you go back to chess, not so much for the chess, but for the experience of concentration. And so now I know when I haven't been concentrating, a good day is one where I've had many hours of it. Now, I wrote an essay for Eon magazine about chess and concentration, and that's again available online. But there is a useful distinction between attention and concentration, I think, for the philosophers among us. I think we we expect a little too much of attention and and not enough of concentration. The way I see it is that Attention is a capacity of the mind to focus and attend, but concentration is more about the prerequisite for that, the prior activity of sort of bringing together fissipurous parts of the self. So the parts, we sort of flow out of ourselves into the environment and into history in our minds and into the future in our minds. And concentration is a kind of bringing back to actually focus in that sense, it's a precondition for attention. And I think sometimes when we say attention, we really mean concentration. You know, what I mean is you can attend to all sorts of things. You can attend to slot machines or a football match or whatever. And getting better attention in that way is value neutral or not necessarily a good thing. But the capacity to actually bring yourself back together with the express purpose of focusing your energy seems to me to have real value. It's an actual value sort of positive skill. It's something that we more of us need to have, the capacity to bring the self together with a view to attending to something rather than just, you know, in some ways we have too much attention. We're attending all the time. It's that we're asked to pay attention to our phones, to the adverts, to the TV, to our partners, to our children. The demands of attention are constant, so much so that we can't concentrate. So I think there's some useful philosophical work in teasing out those terms, but that doesn't have to detain us. Let's play with another one here. You say we need to make peace with our struggles. There's a lot in that. (laughs) Yeah, well, it came about in a chapter called Escapism is a Trap, which is another somewhat paradoxical line. It's because chess looks like a form of escapism, right? If you spend many hours or years playing this game, it's like, that's not real life. You know, shouldn't you be doing something real? Why so much energy in here? Well, maybe you're escaping from something. That's a sort of superficial level. And you think, what are you talking about? I'm so alive when I'm playing this game. I'm caught up in a community. I have purpose. I have meaning. I have status here. And I love it. I'm completely absorbed in this. It's creative. It's beautiful. Why would I want to be anywhere else, right? And then someone will say, well, okay, I take your point. It's not quite escapism. In some ways, living 
a nine to five job and ticking all society's boxes is escaping from your own responsibility to individuate as well. But when it comes to making peace with your struggle, what it's really about is that you can't escape. Right? There's a sense in which there is no escape from the psyche. There is no escape really from forms of suffering. And so when I say make peace with your struggle, it's sort of realizing that this identity project that we get caught up in to become a certain kind of person doesn't ever really end. You know, if you're fulfilled as a professor and writer and established person, there's still a restlessness in the soul to do and be other things. So making peace with, the, with your struggle is a way of saying, stop waiting for the arrival. It's not just enjoy the journey. It's something more about the resistance and the difficulty, the fact that you're not easy about it, the fact that you're uncomfortable with who you are is something to make peace with. You know, it's like that is in some ways the place to be. It's to, to settle into that equilibrium that's also a disequilibrium. That's what the chapter is about. It's making peace with the fact that you're always going to be a work in progress. Yes, and it speaks to several really important psychological and even anthropological recognitions about our nature as human beings. One is that conflict does seem to be baked into the psyche, at least at certain stages and levels. Now, psychoanalysis sometimes is defined as a psychology of conflict. And the psychoanalysts assume that conflict is inevitable. There's always conflict between our wants and our defenses and etc., etc. So there's that possibility. I think that tends to be rather a, a superficial perspective because contemplative psychologies and direct experience reveal that it is possible to cultivate states of conscious and even stages where there is more flow. It's not that the now, now the perspective becomes more Taoistic, where movement of opposites is seen from a larger harmonic perspective rather than assumed to be in, or experienced as inherently conflictual. Yeah. So there's that. And then there's the important psychological recognition that within the psyche, what we resist persists. So if we resist <laughs> our conflict, that just exacerbates it. And so th there is a very important kind of judo move in psychological work and spiritual work in which we come to accept not only our conflict, but our foibles. And by removing our resistance to them, we stop fueling them. And mm -hmm. so this idea we need to make peace with our struggles seems to go very deep. Well, I did try. I mean, I, like I say, I tried to answer the question, what does chess teach me about life? If I have a regret about the book, it's been about two years now. It was a philosophical, and on the one hand, it's kind of a playful, it's three, the three things are going on in the book. One is, is a little bit of a memoir about the formation of a self through chess. The other is that there's a kind of autoethnography in which you get a sort of guided tour to a world that I know well that you may not you know, otherwise be familiar with, the ins and outs of the chess world. But the third side of it is this deeper philosophical inquiry into how to live, really. And can chess really teach you anything about that? And the answer is, well, chess by itself may not, but if you engage in it in the right way and draw out the right modes of inquiry and, and, and yoke the experience in a certain way, you do get to things like this, like making peace with the struggle, because, you know, chess is a struggle, right? It's inherently combative, competitive. And so there's a subtle nod to that as well, that making peace with our struggle is like this sense of perennial conflict, which is everywhere from the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna on the battlefield scenario, to modern dispatch bots, politicians talking to each other across the aisle. 
yeah, you get this point where you realize this is endemic. This is not something that we need to necessarily fear, but something rather to make peace with. And like you say, at some point, the two things begin to look like one thing while still remaining two things. Yeah. In so many cases in psychological, deep psychological work and contemplative work, we start with an idea that we have to get rid of some aspect of ourselves and do a kind of 180 degrees towards a welcoming of that and a realizing that when we release the resistance, it ceases to be not only problematic, but can often cease to be pathological. A related idea, Roger, in the book that draws out on the same idea, I wrote about the idea of successful underachievement. I don't know if you came across that, but <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was me grappling with this feeling because you mentioned that I reached quite high and it's true I did and 139 is quite a funny number because on the one hand it you know it's quite close to the very summit on the other hand it's quite far and I was that kind of player I became very very good but I was never really a threat to the very best in the world however I say that because there have been moments where I've thought mm, I could have tried a bit harder I kind of stopped playing when I was about 29 there was a bit more fuel in the tank you know a few more tournaments a bit more study Maybe I could have got to world top 50, you know, maybe beating a few of the very best players, something like that. And then whenever I think that, it feels like I'm obliged to have one of two responses. One is don't be silly. You did so well. What are you talking about? But that doesn't quite ring true because it's a real experience and I it arose from a natural desire to keep on growing. On the other hand, the other response is something like, yes, you should really have done it. You, you know, uh, you, you should regret that. Like, of, of course, you should have tried harder. How many people are that good at chess? You had a chance to be re really close to the top. You should have kept going. And I've grappled with like both of them being partially true and partially valid. And I came up with this idea that what you needed was not the kind of everything is fine. It was quite right for me to stop playing, nor the flagellating. I was an idiot. I should have kept going. But something more like what I call successful underachievement, which is something to say, Yes, it matters. Yes, I could have gone further. Yes, I even regret it a little bit. But I, I'm playful with that and I hold it as part of who I am. Mm -hmm. I don't say it's not true, but it's just not the whole truth. People have found this helpful because this happens across the piece. This happens to artists and musicians and many people who have a moment in their life where they could get really good at something. And then life took a different turn. I've had a lot of feedback along these lines that people struggle with this feeling because everyone keeps telling them not to worry about it. Like your life's fine. You didn't have to become a great musician or rock star. You didn't have to be a great artist. It's okay to be at peace with your life as it is. But there's something not quite right about that. Like that part of you that wanted to be it and regrets it needs to be allowed to breathe. It shouldn't be silenced. It just shouldn't take you over either. It shouldn't be explained away yet. I felt that was quite an important insight. It was quite hard earned that there was the place to land was not sort of explaining away the desire that wasn't fulfilled, nor was the place to land a kind of punishing view that you made a mistake. Somehow accepting that there is disappointment there and there is regret there, but that's part of the psyche and part of the character and it's part of a greater picture. And I found this is quite helpful for people to make sense of their own lives because it when you try and explain it away, it's still, like you say, what you resist persists. And I think it matters. The whole world of success and failure, this idea of successful underachievement, I find quite a tonic. So. You made a, a very soulful choice. I mean, you got near the pinnacle. You played against the greats. I mean, you were right there. And you said, no, perhaps I could get there, but I'm not quite willing to put that much energy into it because perhaps there's this other thing 
that I have to do with my life. But it's also true that I've regretted it every day, right? Mm. I'm just trying to, that's what I'm trying to convey. It's completely true that I don't that I I'm glad the way my life's turned out. I'm really glad about the decision I took. It's also true that I regret it every day because there was more chess to be played. There was more fulfillment for the soul in that world. But you can't live every life, right? You have to make your choices. Mm-hmm. It's just not true to say that it was without regret. There is some regret there. That's beautiful. That's really, really good. Yes, and it feels like an example of a larger process that I think we've seen on multiple occasions with this discussion, Jonathan, and that is you stepped outside and embraced all the elements of it. Or it's so easy to to just focus on one side of a, a conflict or a debate or anything. It seems like really one of the challenges and necessities is to step back and embrace all the elements, all the dimensions. And particularly given that from what we know of the psyche, and I think here of classic Buddhist psychology, the idea that what they call the comparing mind, that we compare ourselves with others and with what could be continuously right up until the final stage of spiritual maturity. So this is baked into us, it seems, this constant comparing and if only and wishing. And so it does feel important to come to peace with that. And and it can't be wished away. I'd love to get into just a couple more here with you. you know, one is this wonderfully, I'm, I'm summarizing here, but aphorism of algorithms are puppeteers. <laughs> so a lot in that one. Would you like to unpack it for us? Yeah, there is. And it's interesting how quickly time moves, because I think when I came up with that idea, it might have been about three years ago, possibly four. And this was a way of making sense of a chapter called Cyborgs and Civilians. And it was recognizing that through chess, I had learned a lot about the human computer interface. Because when I grew up, I was a pretty analog player studying from books and playing with wooden chess sets and so forth. But by the time I was you know, beginning to stop playing, computers were a huge feature of how strong players prepared. And we would compare ourselves against how the engines, as we called them, thought. Algorithms are puppeteers as a way of saying that the chess computers, as we call them, are algorithmic. They are given some initial input based on evaluation functions, and they use them to make judgments about the best move. And the problem with that is that when the algorithm is not very good, you get quite crude, inappropriate moves. As the algorithms get better, of course, it becomes more powerful. But if you think of it in a human context, so much of our life is now driven by algorithm. It's algorithms what makes you click on a notification. Algorithms are what make you check your phone algorithms to some extent decide if you're worthy of credit or not and when i call them puppeteers what i'm trying to get at is you have to realize that these things are controlling your life in a chess context it's relying too much on the computer to think for you and not attending to your own mind to what's happening but in the world at large it has this broader application which is you know distrust synthetic knowledge or respect but this respect but verify They're puppeteers in the sense that a puppeteer controls a puppet, right? And if we're not careful, we become those puppets controlled by the algorithms of Facebook and Google and so forth. And we don't want to be that. We want to be the puppet masters of our own puppets, right? We want to control our own lives and direct it the best we can. And algorithms are a risk to that because they're so powerful and so preference shaping and desire crafting that if we're not careful, we become their slaves, their puppets. So that's what I mean when I say algorithms are puppeteers. An algorithm, of course, for those who maybe 
want refreshing on what the term means. It's a kind of code which gives rise to an operation of a decision-making mechanism. So the algorithm will sort of pre-structure choices for you based on prior information. So what you see in your feeds on social media are driven by algorithms based on data that's been provided before. But this applies across the piece now. Arguably, we're in an algorithmic society, some even say. So understanding that is the first step towards not being a puppet of all the algorithms that shape our lives. Oh, I'm, I'm torn because there's so much more I'd love to explore and I realize you're running out of time. So maybe maybe to shift to the question, what are the, stepping back a little again now, what are the questions that are calling or compelling you at this time? I miss having clarity about God, to be honest. I'm at a phase of life, I'm mid-40s, I'm 44 I've created this organization that's now in need of some help. I mean, it's doing well, but it's at a fragile stage and it needs some financial support and arguably I need some other colleagues and build capacity. So I struggle at work every day. And then personally, I have young children and they have complex needs. And I'm conscious of various political issues in the world. And throughout all that time, spiritually, I often feel like a longing for a clearer sense of relationship with the divine to be honest. It's there kind of tacitly, and I feel it now and again, but I would love a period of time out to meditate more, even to pray more, to study more to some extent, to reconnect with my body, because I'm just, life is living me at the moment. I'm just completely caught up in, you know, it's a rich, full, wonderful life. I'm, you know, I'm deeply grateful for it. On the other hand, I notice that I'm, I'm not able to adequately attend to, let's say, the cosmopoetics of my life, like the the kind of the richer, fuller relationship with whatever lies behind reality. And so for me at the moment, I want to be not so busy that I find I'm 20 years older and that hasn't happened. You know, I'm very keen to find the strength of that, the sustenance of that. And it's a little bit out of reach at the moment. So that's alive for me. It's like not so much finding God because it's a sense in which she is there, but they're making it a fuller part of my life so that I feel that connection more profoundly on a day-by-day basis. Such a poignant response. And I, yeah, God bless you, Jonathan. That's very moving, brother. Yeah, I also am just resonating. I can feel what a heartfelt quest or yearning that is for you. And yes, bless you indeed. May it be so. And may you bring that into your work as fully as possible. As we come towards the end of our time, is there one idea that you would like to get out you know, what's the, do you see as a, a really crucial idea that you'd like to permeate into the culture? Hmm. It's a very generous invitation. It feels like one of those ones where I really ought to have an answer. It reminds me of, you go for a job interview and they ask you, why do you want this job? And you're like, wait, wait, too direct. I wasn't ready for that question. So, okay, taking it seriously, what single idea would I most want people to, yeah, I think I would say this, and it's personal, as you know, Roger, I recently gave a eulogy for my brother, Mark, who died, sadly, quite recently. And I began the eulogy. I've been given the advice that because it's a eulogy, you never know how much, how emotional you're going to be, how much you're going to well up. Even if you speak in public a lot, as I do, you can't be sure you're just not going to get caught and be unable to speak because you're so moved by emotion. And the advice was, don't look people in the eye. The person who was the expert, the celebrant, he said, I advise you, if you're worried about that, don't look the audience in the eye because your shared sense of loss will almost certainly move you beyond the point where you can speak. And then it's difficult for everyone because if you're the speaker and you can't speak, no one knows what to do. 
But I began the speech by saying, I've been advised not to look you in the eye because I might thereby bring to bear what I call the wobbly lip, you know, the moment of emotion welling up. I said, however, I believe the wobbly lip arises from the tremor inside our souls that is the best of us. And therefore, I'm going to trust the feelings to do their thing. And if I look you in the eye, you're welcome to look me back. And I say that now as a long form answer of saying, I think our tears are the best of us. Like, I think somehow that feeling, not just any old tears, because they can be tears of anguish, tears of anger and so forth, but the feeling of welling up, that feeling where you involuntarily feel emotion based on some kind of sense that something matters that you hadn't previously been fully aware of that comes unbidden as a kind of gift and kidnaps you in a certain sense, overwhelms you with feeling, feeling that is sort of delicious and yet somehow also debilitating. I think I'd want people to know that whatever that is, that feeling of the upwelling of the interior, just before you cry, that feeling of deep emotion from your depths, welcome that into your life, find out what it means and live accordingly. I think that's what I'd say. Mm, Beautiful. And certainly there's been a sense in our dialogue of you feeling into your very being for the appropriate responses to whatever was called for in the moment of our dialogue. And it really has felt, on the one hand, an incredibly rich intellectual discussion and analysis, and on the other hand, kind of expression of deep, deep being in each moment. I really honor that. And it feels like that's the place when each of us comes from our direct experience and feeling into our depths in each moment. That's where the deepest meeting happens, but also some of the most creative contributions and shared discoveries. And I, for one, have found myself reflecting on things in new ways, which have been very, very helpful. So, Jonathan, it's just been a privilege to have this dialogue with you and a delight. I, I just love your writing and your thinking and your contributions you're making. And and I can heartily recommend your books, the ones I've, I've delved, in, delved into, your chess book, The Moves That Matter, your book, Spiritualize, Revitalizing Spirituality to Address 21st Century Challenges, and most recently, Metamodernity. And let's see, the Perspectiva website and your websites are what? www.systems-souls-society.com, systems-souls-society.com. And my personal website is jonathanrowson.me, as simple as that. (laughs) Okay, great. Jonathan, thank you so much. And all best wishes for the wonderful work you're doing. Oh, pleasure, Roger. Thanks a lot. And thank you, John. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.